0: You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.
1: We start with Gaelic Games and members of the Dublin Senior Football Squad appear to have broken COVID-19 rules by taking part in a dawn training session yesterday, according to the Irish Independent. Frank Roach's report is accompanied by photos showing a number of players taking part in what appeared to be a non-contact session at Inish Vale's GAA Club on the north side of Dublin. The paper reports that the players arrived shortly before 7am. The session occurred, though, barely 12 hours after Croke Park issued a circular to all clubs and counties warning that any breach of the current ban on collective training could put the GAA's overall plans for a return in serious jeopardy. Well, to discuss this further, we're joined now by our Gaelic Games correspondent, Marty Marsey Good morning to you, Marty. What are the Good morning, implications guys. here?
2: Well, there is precedent here, unfortunately, because uh, already two inter-county managers uh, have been suspended. Uh, Cork manager Rona McCarthy uh, was suspended uh, back in January, I think in January 2nd. The Cork footballers had a team-building session, I think it was the way it was described, a collective training session unauthorised on Yall Beach. Well, around the same time, Paddy Talley had a meeting with his players, the down manager at CBS in Uri. Now, Rona McCarthy got three months suspension, Paddy Talley got two months. But as you rightly say in your introduction. This uh, uh, latest uh, what we see in the Irish Independent only comes just two days after the Director General of the GAA Tom Ryan and the President Larry McCarthy had written a letter to County and Club Secretaries stressing the need for compliance. And the letter, while welcoming the announcement by the Taoiseach also pointed out that these dates are conditional and will very much depend on what happens in terms of the overall COVID-19 picture in the coming weeks. And the real important line here is, for that reason, and I quote, it is more important than ever that no collective training sessions are held between now and the government-indicated return dates, which is April 19th. Breaches in this context will not only be dealt with under our own rules, but would likely put the broader plans to return to activity in serious jeopardy. The feeling I would get, I guess, um, Des, is that there would be widespread anger uh, that, uh, uh, with this report in the Irish Independent today about the Dublin footballers uh, training uh, in the north side of Dublin.
1: Clearly then, based on what you've just read out, do you think it will endanger the return to action of the GA calendar?
2: I think there's a possibility. I think there's there there will be based on what we've seen. I think there could be well be a suspension, uh, or suspensions heading uh, towards uh, Dublin. Uh, I think you know we have seen we've we've all experienced and been frustrated with uh, the five kilometer limit, the three months of of lockdown we've seen in other areas where uh, the Beacon Hospital, Saint Jared's School, which I know is different, uh, and uh, but I think there is widespread uh, anger and there will be, and there is I think it will also endanger perhaps the return of the G.A. to the elite status, which hasn't happened. And, you know, in the context of this, you know, Neff had advised the government that the phased return of non-contact outdoor training should uh, start with the under-13s, but not until May. Now, the focus on the G.A. is already high, and this will make it worse, there's no doubt. It won't change, the kids because the kids returning is all sports, but it shows that the government already uh, were pushing beyond what was recommended. So I think it has uh, lots of implications. And
1: you expect we will hear from Dublin and the GA who haven't spoken yet on it. You think we will hear from them today, do you?
2: Well, I I, I I, think they have no other choice uh, but to, to come out and make a statement. And I think it's also perhaps naive for us to think that maybe this is not happening elsewhere. So I think this will certainly focus um, the minds of the GA officials and will also focus the mind of, of Dublin County Board officials. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens next.
1: All right, Marty Marcy, more on this throughout the day. No doubt. Thanks very much for joining us here on Morning Ireland. Let's talk now to
3: Dr. Mary Favier, who is COVID-19 advisor for the Irish College of General Practitioners and is also a member of the National Public Health Emergency Team. Dr. Favier, good morning and thank you for being with us.
4: Good morning, Justin.
3: Uh, On April 12th, we're going to have a million children returning to schools and creches. There'll be 14,000 construction workers returning to sites. There'll be increased movement within counties because the five kilometre limit will be lifted. Would it still be possible to keep control of the virus with that much movement taking place?
4: I think general practitioners will will welcome the the, the general easing of movement in terms of outside activity because that is by far the most safe. But it's a reasonable concern to say we have to do this very slowly and with absolute caution. We've never opened up before on a situation where the numbers are this high so it has to be very slowly. It just has to be outside. Because... The, the the variant is, is is really still pushing against our health system. It's really challenging us. And as we increase our vaccination, that's the pushback against it. But to achieve that, we need at least another four weeks, probably re- more like eight weeks to really get ahead of, of this variant that's with high infectiousness rates. And so cautious, it's, it's slow. And I think if, in the end, we'll be criticised potentially for opening up too fast rather than too slowly, but it's an important progress. We we need to try and 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 take the gains we have. And so, one of the very significant gains is that two people who are vaccinated can now meet indoors, and that's that's a great progress for our elderly patients in particular.
3: Yes, but you mentioned there the the starting point where we're coming from here now. We have around six hundred cases per day, and I see in in the Irish Times um, that Neffet has warned the government that starting at that point, six hundred cases per day that in four weeks' time, um, we, we could be at 2,000 cases per day. W- will it still be possible to do the type of things that the Taoiseach outlined uh, yesterday in terms of reopening um, You know, in, in April, May and June, uh, with numbers that are that high, even if vaccinations are rolled out?
4: If the numbers were to rise to 2,000, and that will only happen if people do not obey all the other measures, which is avoiding close contacts, wearing a mask, washing your hands, they're the things that actually prevent the spread of the disease. But if we were to rise to 2,000 cases, I don't think we could continue in the way we are. We'd be looking at more restrictions. And so that, that's a really stark warning for people to say we've got this fantastic opportunity to make this happen. It's this is a really you know optimistic time. We're we're approaching the end of the marathon. As GPs, we're really trying to manage all the non-COVID work, we're trying to manage vaccination as well as high COVID rates in the community, but we we'd be asking people to bear with us. By the end of May, we could really be ahead of vaccination and it could have made a very substantial difference. So if people are starting to socialise outside, that they do the, it with caution, they do it with all the appropriate measures. And similarly, the responsibility lies in construction work. It relies in, in the sports that training that's going back that they really are very careful in terms of how they they phase those changes in.
3: You mentioned training there from April 19th, training will be permitted for high performance athletes and for senior inter-county GAA players. Now, as I understand it, that wasn't an effort recommendation. That was a government decision. Is that safe to do?
4: The concerns around that are not the actual sport. And this applies to anybody playing sport outside. It's what happens when people share cars getting to the training. It happens in the chats before and afterwards. It happens with people standing at the gate. It happens in the dugout and potential socialising. So they're the things that people returning to these environments need to be really careful of. But but it's going to be outside. And and with responsible shepherding of it, it, it should work. All of these restrictions will be reviewed on a regular basis every four weeks, every eight weeks. And if they have to change, they will. But it's it's very positive that we're getting there. And the next big one is that youngsters under 18 can start to, to undertake training outside. And I think that would be one of the most welcome measures um, Because it has been so difficult for younger people and so difficult for parents trying to manage them. And the same advice will apply there for parents being careful about how they congregate when their children do go back to training and outdoors, exercise and sport.
3: It's also reported today that NEFET has recommended the widespread use of antigen testing, which are fast, uh, fast turnaround. But that opinion is also divided on those. Um, What's your own view of the use of antigen tests?
4: There's been a lot of discussion around antigen testing. It it has some great advantages. It has some significant disadvantages. And it very much, it's very technical. It very much depends on what population you're testing and why. So for targeted use within the health service, there's a lot of value to it. But in other areas where there'd be a very low prevalence, the, the prediction rates and how reliable it is drops considerably. So while there's a lot of discussion around antigen tests, it's, it's not likely to be the, the big answer. The answer is always around the public health measures of washing your hands and wearing a mask. And it's vaccination and it will be the move into vaccination that eventually gives us our ticket out of this. I,
3: I, and finally, Dr. Favier and briefly if you could, uh, that decision and uh, that was made in relation to vaccination by age rather than by um, profession, um, is that the right decision, because you'll have heard in our programme, teachers, Gardie, uh childcare workers and so on, that they had all hoped to be prioritised, but that won't now be happening.
4: The decision was made by NIAC, who are the expert group. They trawled the literature. They trawled all the data coming from public health and from the Irish hospitals, looking at, at everything that influences how sick you get, whether you go to hospital, whether you go to ICU, whether you die from COVID. And in the end, it all comes down to effectively your age. Once you get to the age of 50, the the, the risks really uh, increase. And as general practitioners, we know this. We know that when we get a COVID positive test of a 55-year-old, we all have a slight sinking of our heart, thinking, I hope they do okay." We rarely have that thought in a 35-year-old unless they have another condition. So I understand that it's it's hard for those groups who who do work in, in frontline jobs. But I think for anybody in those jobs who's a 25-year-old, they would much prefer to see their 55-year-old relative vaccinated because that's where the real risk lies than prioritize 25 year olds. And I, I think so much of this will be contingent on on vaccination and it will be reviewed. But there is a very strong evidence base, both in Ireland and internationally, that once you get to the age of about 50, the the risks really rise. And so it doesn't matter then if you're a hairdresser, whether you're a shop worker, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a desk worker, your risks are higher than anybody who's younger than you. And that's the reason for the change. And I think it would be generally very much supported by healthcare workers.
3: Okay, Dr. Mary Favier, COVID 19 advisor for the Irish College of General Practitioners, thank you for talking to us this morning. <music>
5: There's been global outrage at the killing by the Myanmar military of more than 100 anti-coup protesters on Saturday, the deadliest day since last month's coup. The US accused the Burmese security forces of a reign of terror. On Saturday night, the coup leader, Min Aung Lang and his generals threw a lavish party for Armed Forces Day. Yesterday, funerals for some of those murdered were held, with some reports saying the military had tried to intervene in the morning. More than 400 people have now been killed in the suppression of protests since February the 1st. I've been speaking to an Irish woman living in Myanmar who we are not naming to protect her security. She described what's been happening in Yangon.
6: This weekend we had the um, annual Armed Forces Day and normally that would be um, a large parade um, kind of showing the might of the Myanmar military um, usually held in the capital, Naypyidaw. It also brought a lot of people out on the street to protest um, on the Saturday. And um, there was a huge amount of violence and crackdowns on those protests. And um, there was the highest number of deaths yet reported on Saturday. And people as young as um, five years old have um, been shot dead. So um, that's, that's what's going on now.
5: And is it possible for you and others to have any sort of normal life there at the moment? Does that continue in any way or is everyone forced to stay in their homes apart from those who who insist on going out to protest?
6: I mean, I think um, because of the pandemic, we've all been able to um, adjust to working at home. So there is a minimal amount of work um, going on um, from home. Um uh, apart from that there are supermarkets that have remained open and the street street markets, wet markets. Um but the banking system has been totally locked down since the first of February, so that causes huge problems with um the flow of cash. Even if people are working, it's very difficult for them to be paid. Um ATMs are you know rarely stocked up and um when banks um, stock up the ATMs, there's long queues. It's difficult for people to access their cash. So um, economically, the country has really come to a halt. And um, for the average person that day to day going out, generally, people don't really go out. They try to stay in their home or near their home. And um, it's not, not really normal life at all.
5: There must be a real climate of fear. Is there, are there soldiers with guns everywhere?
6: Um, It's very sporadic. Um, Of course, there are certain protest sites that have been um, seeing a lot of like high numbers of protesters and um, um, more brutal crackdowns since the the protesting began in early February. But it's not confined to those um, areas either. They can. The soldiers have been seen anywhere around the city, um, many places around the country. Um, most major towns, police and soldiers are there with their guns. And um, I suppose it's what has happened up until this weekend was that there were civilian erected barriers, uh, you know, made from bags of sand and um, you know bits and pieces. People were trying to protect their own neighborhoods by using these um, homemade barriers and because the military wants life um, to go back to being as normal as possible, um, they just want business as usual. So they violently um, got people to remove those barriers and there was multiple reports of them shouting into the street, if we come back here and we see um, this barrier is up again, we'll shoot everyone on the street. So um, there has been less, um, there has been less um, of that kind of thing in the last couple of days, but people are still going out and protesting.
5: Yes, and the threats from the military are horrific. They they have threatened to shoot people in the back and in the head if they continue to protest. Do you know people who? who are risking their lives in this way, who are insistent on taking to the streets and overthrowing this coup?
6: I do. I think there is a lot of young people um, who know the dangers and um, know the risk, know how easy it would be for them to be arrested or shot or injured. Um, I think everyone here knows someone who has either been arrested, and many people know someone who has you know, been shot or killed, um it's not really confined to people who are protesting or as they say, on the front lines either. A lot of people are being caught up by the, the, caught up in between um, the violence. And as I said, very young people sometimes shot, caught in the, in the crossfire. Um, the young people continue to go out because they have hurt, uh, they've grown up hearing the stories from their parents about what happened in the previous revolutions um, and how life was under the previous dictatorship. Um, they've had this about five years under the uh, uh, democratic government and um, it wasn't a perfect democracy, but they got a taste of democracy and um, it's that combination is quite dangerous to the military because the young people know what they can have, and they are sure that they don't want to go back to what their parents had. And that, I believe, is why a lot of young people are still going out and risking their lives. It is so dangerous.
5: Is there any sign at all that any elements of the military are prepared to defy orders?
6: There have been small numbers of um, both police and a very few number of um, soldiers who have um, defied their orders. The thing is that those soldiers tend to be from the more rural part, based in the more rural parts of the country and the police as well. And while it can be quite encouraging for the movement, um, it's quite ineffective. The most brutal battalions are here um, in Yangon and um, they're not defecting. Um, You have to remember there's... A system of fear and a sort of brainwashing that goes on in the military and um, to defy orders is really to sign up to a, an awful future. Um, so I think that's why there are so few people defecting from the military and the police.
5: And that was an Irish woman living in Myanmar. We are not naming her to protect her security and we thank her for talking to us this morning. <laughs> From today, employees will
7: have improved rights to disconnect from work outside normal working hours. This is under a new Code of Practice published by the Government. The Financial Services Union has welcomed the publication of the Code of Practice for workers on the right to disconnect. And our reporter, Killian Sherlock, has been speaking to the FSU's Head of Industrial Relations and Campaigns, Gareth Murphy.
8: Unfortunately, over the last decade or more, we've seen a rise of an always on working culture and that really has informally extended the working week and often in an unpaid way. And what this has led to is really a rise in work related stress. So we absolutely welcome the publication of the Code of Practice from the WRC, which I think for many workers will define the right to disconnect. It says you've the right to log off and you have to switch off and it actually creates an expectation that workers should disconnect uh, outside of hours and should actually um, uh, log off outside of hours and that employers need to put the right training in place and the right workplace policies in place and negotiated with trade unions to ensure um, that this happens
7: the FSU's Gareth Murphy. However, the Head of Employment Law at Mason, Hayes & Curran, Melanie Crowley, has cautioned against a one-size-fits-all approach to the right to disconnect. Ms Crowley says if Ireland wants to be an open economy attracting high-value service sector jobs, the market for those jobs means companies will work incredibly hard to attract, keep and motivate their staff. If we
9: work truly flexibly, and that means we can go to the supermarket at 11 o'clock or collect the kids from school or go for a run or go to the gym during the day, how are we going to do that if our day is constrained by the fact that we have to switch our laptops off and our mobile phones off at six o'clock? It means that we can't actually go to the supermarket or collect the children or go to the gym because we can't make the time up in the evening after they've gone to bed. And that seems to have been overlooked in the debate. Certainly, there is a huge tranche of the working population that need protection, whether that is somebody on kind of a lower wage, lower incomes, or somebody who has an overzealous boss or supervisor who sends them a document or a PowerPoint at nine o'clock in the evening. And the text come to have a look at it straight away. and, And we've all experienced that. But we also have, you know, people who make six and seven figure incomes and we have people who work for American West Coast tech companies who start their day later and and work on in the evening because that suits them or where their day is broken up because they hang out and play pool or have a swim in the afternoon in their offices and I just I think it's too simplistic to say everybody has to shut off their computers and laptops at six o'clock in the evening because that's the end of the working day.
7: Melanie Crowley there, and those were two contrasting views of the right to disconnect. Let's hear more now from our industry and employment correspondent, Ingrid Miley. Uh, Before we go any further, Ingrid, tell us what this code of practice entails, the three rights of an employee it sets out.
10: Well, I suppose the first thing to say, Anya, it was it doesn't do. It doesn't bar all out-of-hours contact between an employer and an employee. What it bars is routine, intrusive contact between the employer and the employee. What this means is that where this is happening on a routine basis, the employee does not have to engage. For example, if you get an email and it's happening regularly from an employer who is... Looking for something that is not an emergency or whatever, and this is happening routinely, the word routinely is used frequently, you have the right not to engage with that and you can't be penalised if you do. Now, it also imposes a duty that you have to respect the right to disconnect of other people by not sending them massive emails, particularly when it's not for absolutely necessary stuff. I mean, I think we're all in a situation where if there were a major emergency that we, you know, we and we were contacted, we, we'd understand. But I think the rise of technology is underpinning a lot of this. We've all had, I'm sure, moments of what's been called tech stress, where the fact that you have an iPhone, the fact that you have a tablet, the fact that you have you are contactable all the time. And the fact that a lot of these devices are combining personal and work use means that when you check your phone to see has anyone in your family sent you a WhatsApp or whatever, you may also find that there's an email that pops up that d- draws you back into the workplace, if you like. So this is to try and put boundaries on that kind of um, limit between work mm-hmm. and personal time.
7: Uh, it's a code of practice at this stage being launched by the Thánaiste today uh, and there will be further consultations. It is an issue that's going to be, you, you know, more challenging for employees and for workers, isn't it, in the years to come? I mean, we've seen the effect of lockdown, uh, but this is a global trend. We, we, we heard there what uh, Melanie Crowley was saying about people you know, who live in Ireland, maybe in a rural town, and they're working for an American West Coast company.
10: Yes, indeed. I mean, <clears throat> I think it's important to stress that uh, the who was launching who is launching this today is saying that there will be a need for flexibility. And I come back to where I started with this. This is not an absolute ban that limits all working time to an absolute nine to six or whatever. It does allow employers and employees to come up with something that is workable. What is under attack here is a culture that is creating huge workplace stress and, obviously, out-of-workplace stress for employees. And it has been high. It, it has been exacerbated during remote working because while remote working is bringing huge benefits to a lot of people, it is further blurring that boundary between not just work time and uh, office and uh, personal time, but work. Spend- and office space I mean if your files and your laptop are on the kitchen table even after you log off all of this is exacerbating this core issue of space between work work and and personal time so it's important to stress it doesn't put an absolute bar on the other thing to say it isn't it doesn't create an offense this is not a law that can if you like put you in prison or anything what it does is it's a code of practice that can be admitted into evidence in legal proceedings or in a case in the wrc or the labour court Um, and it can whoever is adjudicating on that can have regard to it take it into account and it may be a factor in whatever the outcome of those proceedings are
7: industry and employment correspondent ingrid Miley, thank you Now, who do we trust to tell the
11: truth in 2021? That's the question that the market research company Ipsos MRBI have been asking the public since 2005. A year into the pandemic, healthcare professionals and the National Public Health Emergency Team are high on that list, while there's less trust in government ministers and politicians. Tariq Lahair, Director of Ipsos MRBI, is here to tell us more. Good morning, Tariq. Good morning. Um, Local pharmacists are top of the list, as are nurses, doctors, and scientists. How much of a factor is the pandemic in those particular rankings?
12: Um, I, th- I think it's certainly there. I, I think it's impossible not to look at these results through the lens of the pandemic, given it's, it's front and centre for everybody. But really, since we've, since we've been doing this survey, so right back to 2005, as you he said, healthcare professionals have always been on top. So um, the order has changed very slightly since last year, but essentially our top three remain the same, which is pharmacists, doctors and, and, and nurses at 96, 95 and 94%. So highly trusted and that's backed up by other research we carry out with the public as well.
11: Now at 87%, NEFIT are high on the list but trust on, in them has fallen. How long have you been tracking trust in NEFIT and how has that changed?
12: Just just since last year. So we added NEFIT to the survey last year and um, they were up at 91% last year. has fallen just 4 points so a marginal drop to, to 87% but still still very high on the list. 11% do not trust uh, NEFIT to tell the truth but 87%, 7 and 8 of us do actually higher again, again amongst our youngest cohorts. So 15 to 24-year-olds, 95% of them trust NEFIT. So very high score.
11: Government ministers and politicians haven't fared so well.
12: They haven't, no, um, and, and they did receive a bit of a bounce last year uh, so we did see results that have been historically low increase in 2020 um, but they've fallen back somewhat this year, so I guess being being the face of restrictions, if you like and delivering that message around restrictions government ministers, 31% of us trust them to tell the truth and politicians, 24% of us trust them to tell the truth so both of both of those figures, they're two of the largest drops we've seen this year. Again, it's consistent with other research that Ipsos will be carries out Uh, I think our last political poll more than half of voters said government were not doing a good job in terms of handling the pandemic so it's consistent with other research we're carrying out.
11: Over the past year there's been a lot of people watching and people watching each other sometimes criticising what others are doing so how is our trust in fellow citizens?
12: That's fascinating I think because um Certainly last year that would have dipped as well. Uh, so it's, it's increased marginally this year. It's up at 58%. So we're trusting our fellow, fellow citizen, 58% up four points. Uh, it would have fallen in 2020, perhaps when people were getting used to restrictions and so on, but it's, it's, it's increased back up. Now, having said that, one in three of us do not trust our fellow citizens, so 34% uh, do not trust them to tell the truth, but a higher proportion 58% do, and I think most people feeling, you know, we're all doing our bit, and certainly the results are improving.
11: How much do people trust the media?
12: The media, well journalists are sitting at, at 45%, uh, so so I, I guess relatively mid-table, it's up three points year on year, so uh, a marginal improvement there. Um, certainly if we look at other 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 categories i mean you know delivered through the media sometimes are weather forecasters for example so that's that's one of our highest results 85 percent of us trust weather forecasters to to tell the, the truth and we're obviously hoping for for good news from them in the coming months
11: and television news readers are up there higher than journalists as well
12: uh, correct, television newsreaders are, are are a little bit higher, right, yeah. so coming, coming through a little bit stronger as well. So it's, I, I suppose, you know, similarly mid-table, um, obviously all improving slightly, but many of the results we saw this year, there, weren't a hu- there wasn't a huge amount of movement year on year. So quite consistent, really, despite the, the pandemic, other than the movements that I've outlined.
0: Tell us
11: about other than politicians who are the least trusted and do we know why?
12: yeah I mean bottom of our list come uh, two categories so advertising executives 17% of us trust them to tell the truth uh, and bottom of the list are actually so- social media influencers at just 6% um, I-, I guess with the latter the clue is possibly in the name social media influencers um, it's interesting right across all demographics um, the trust really isn't there I think p- people recognise and perhaps are very interested in for example what, what um, advertisers and social media influencers have to say it's not that we don't pay attention but um, Perhaps the public are wise enough to to not take everything, um, to perhaps take it with a bit of a pinch of salt because the results certainly suggest that um, we don't fully trust them to tell the truth all of the time.
11: And teachers, Garthi, and the clergy, they're consistent good performers over the years you've been surveying.
12: They are, they are. So teachers, right up there, are just behind our healthcare professionals. Actually, at eighty-eight percent of us trusting teachers, uh, Gardie are performing well. Eighty-three percent trusting the gardi and that's up ten points actually in two years. So quite a good result there. Uh, and the clergy, uh, fifty-six percent of us trust the clergy to tell the truth. Again, that's that's um up marginally on last year. Higher among uh older respondents as well. It would be uh the result would be up at sixty-six percent for the for those aged sixty-five and over. So perhaps higher trust among. That cohort for for the clergy.
11: Okay, Tariq Leher, Director of Ipsos MRBI, thank you for that
0: earlier in the program we were talking about the tightening of covid restrictions in a number of european countries so we thought we'd check in with some of those countries starting with france where, as you may have heard amid a continued surge in covid cases the french president emmanuel macron announced a widening of lockdown restrictions stephen carroll is a journalist with france 24 he's based in paris he joins us now on the line stephen what exactly did emmanuel macron announce yesterday
13: So the main measure the president announced here was an extension of a lockdown that was already in place in the Paris region, in the north of France and around the city of Nice. That's extended to the whole country, uh, which will mean the closure of non-essential shops and limits on travel, people not being able to go more than 10 kilometres from home. The other big change is the closure of schools, schools are going to close from Monday for three weeks uh, across France, there's going to be a week of learning online, two weeks of school holidays, and then primary schools will come back after that third week but secondary schools will remain closed for a fourth week, that's a big change here because schools have been open for the whole academic year in France since last September, Uh, so that is a big change for parents that are now having to try and reorganise themselves around the closure of schools.
0: What's the response been among French people?
13: People had been expecting that there would be a tightening of restrictions. Everyone's been watching the case numbers go up. The ICU capacity here has been hitting its limits, although the president did announce in his speech that they were extending the number of ICU beds as well. So people knew that there were restrictions coming. We had had some hints from other government ministers speaking over recent days that this would be the, likely the moment that, that restrictions would be tightened People would have said that it should have been done earlier, and certainly the opinion polls would say very strongly that Emmanuel Macron should have acted earlier at the end of January and taken more strict restrictions then. The French government's argument is is that they, during this period, have been able to keep schools open, have been allowed being able to keep some of those businesses open uh, to limit the impact on the economy. This month's worth of closures is going to cost the French state around 11 billion euros, so they've tried to push it back as long as possible. People, like everywhere, are sick of COVID restrictions and certainly this is, many people are in fact saying now that perhaps they haven't gone far enough with these restrictions, um, but it had been largely expected.
0: Just finally, Stephen, I see in my notes here that hairdressers and bookshops are counted as essential. Is that the case?
13: That's right. The, the, the list of non-essential businesses, or the list of essential businesses rather, has been growing uh, during the course of the past years. So actually, the list now uh, includes so, of course, supermarkets, pharmacies, etc. Essential businesses as they are in Ireland, but in France, the list this time includes hardware stores, technology stores, uh, hairdressers, as you said, uh, bookshops, record shops. They'll all be allowed to continue opening as well. Um, and the, the government has been trying, I suppose, to keep as much of the economy working as possible. But there had been very heavy lobbying, particularly by bookshops around the time of the last lockdown in November, that there should be an allowance made for people to be able to go and buy books uh, as they would buy food as well. And I suppose that gives you an idea of where um, culture play is placed uh, by the French government too. Interestingly, President Macron did also start to lay out a timetable for lifting of restrictions as well. Bars and restaurants in France have been closed since October of last year. So People are now expecting there to start be a reopening from mid-May. Uh, sometime between mid-May and mid-June, we should see a return of outdoor dining here. That's what the president told us to expect, but he's going to lay out that calendar later. Uh, so with uh, still a couple of months to go before we see any reopening here.
0: Stephen, many thanks for that. Stephen Carroll there with France 24 in Paris. We're going to go next to Spain and Miguel Ancho Morado, who's a journalist based in Madrid. Thanks indeed for joining us. What's the current situation in Spain?
14: Well, uh, it was not that bad until, um, say, yesterday... There's been a watershed yesterday because the um, the numbers are going up again. Um, this was to be expected because the the rate of infection um, had been declining, but uh, at a at a slower pace in the last uh, few days, and now is going up. We are approaching a high level risk, and that means um, that means that there will be and there are indeed new restrictions. The, the main, the most important one being that the face mask has been become has become compulsory even in situations in which you're not surrounded by people in practice it doesn't make a lot of difference because um, everybody wears face mask all the time but now it's uh, it's compulsory even if you are alone say in the middle of the forest you still have to wait to to, to, to to wear the face mask and of course there are all sorts of restrictions that vary greatly from one region to another because in spain the system is highly decentralized
0: Mm. Talk to us, if you would, about the vaccine rollout because this has been a contentious issue in so many countries. And um, what has the situation been in Spain?
14: Unfortunately, it's painfully slow. Um, by now, less than eight million people have been vaccinated with the first shot of the vaccine of, of the AstraZeneca or the Moderna uh, vaccine or Pfizer. Um uh, and only less than three million people have got the two uh, the two shots that you need to be completely um, I- completely safe. Um, so it's going very, very slowly. This is blamed um, partly on the on the procurement on the European Union, uh, partly on the bureaucratic processes of uh, Spain itself. The central government blames uh, the regional governments, the regional governments blamed the central government we don't know exactly what is the reason why this is going so slow, um, so slowly. But it is indeed very very slow. Um, and also the criteria is different from one region to another. For example, in the region of Madrid, the the, the central the, the regional government decided to vaccinate essential personnel first, say doctors, nurses, uh, policemen, etc. Um, in other places, it is uh, um, by age. So is the older the the, the older people that are vaccinated first and in other places is by um, the initial of your name so it's a little bit chaotic uh, uh, besides being very very slow
0: yeah, it's been interesting this morning This morning, hearing about the different approaches to the vaccine rollout. Um, Miguel, thank you for joining us with that. We're going to go finally now to Kate Brady, who's a Euronews reporter in Berlin. Um, the resurgence of COVID has also been an issue, we know, in Germany, Kate. What's the latest?
15: Well, it's really not a pretty picture right now. And the latest figures came up with a new number of cases just this morning. Um, the Public Health Institute here reporting more than, well, actually more than 24,000 new cases uh, within the last 24 hours and 201 deaths. So we've seen these numbers increasing day on day in the last few weeks. And at the moment, the current state of lockdown has been extended until April 18th. But compared to what is seen as a, you know, a true lockdown, in other countries is really still quite quite relaxed here in Germany. You can uh, still move around your city some things are still open uh, for getting food to take away for example but for the large part a lot of restaurants, non-essential shops, basically anything apart from essential shops are still largely closed but again that differs state to state and that seems to be one of the biggest stumbling blocks in Germany's uh, dealing with the pandemic right now is this patchwork of different rules around the country in different interpretations of what's actually agreed upon in these talks between the different state leaders and Chancellor Merkel. And then these are all being implemented to varying degrees in different places around the country.
0: And as far as the vaccine rollout is concerned, have there been developments?
15: There's been very, very slow developments. It's still a very sluggish vaccine rollout. Only about 11.6% of the population has already received its its first, uh, their first jab. Uh, so that's about 9.6 million people. Another uh, four and a half of, uh, sorry, about 4.1 at the minute have received their second jab. Um, and of course, you know, earlier this week, uh, Germany announced as well that it's no longer going to be administering the AstraZeneca jab to people under the age of 60. So that's yet another setback to Germany's vaccine rollout and certainly going to become more of an issue as well as we have uh, reached the, the younger age groups here in Germany. But for now, um, it's so slow that most of the states here are still only vaccinating the over 70s and of course also at the same time are the people with underlying issues and frontline medical workers.
0: Kate, many thanks for joining us with that. Kate Brady there, Euro News reporter in Berlin. And I see uh, within the past short while The Wire is reporting that Europe's COVID-19 vaccine rollout has been described as un- unacceptably slow by the World Health Organization.
16: House prices have gone up again by almost 8% in the last year. That's according to a study by the housing website daft.ie, which advertises houses to buy and rent. Ronan Lyons is an economist at Trinity College Dublin and author of the daft.ie report. Ronan Lyons, good morning again. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Tell us more about this rise.
17: So as you mentioned it's a rise of nearly 8% uh, nationally as an average Uh, and that does vary a bit around the country but the pattern generally across the country is one of rising prices Um, so the the increases are biggest in the cities outside Dublin so in Cork, Galway, Limerick and Waterford cities where prices typically are up by about 12% year on year and then in the rest of Leinster again excluding Dublin uh, where prices are up by a little bit more in some places a little bit less but roughly the same amount 12 or 13% that sounds like Dublin has seen the smallest increases but actually dublin is in line with the national average It the smallest increases and this may go against some of the thinking around how COVID would affect the market the smallest increases actually have been in rural munster connacht and ulster where prices are up maybe two or three percent year on year but but far less than uh, in in some places
16: why are they rising
17: so that's a very good question and if you'd ask someone like me a year ago i would have said that something like a pandemic would be expected to cause prices to fall because uh, of extra unemployment and, 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 and so on. Uh, but the nature of this recession has been different to all previous recessions in the, in the last couple of decades. It hasn't been the case that everyone's income has suffered a little. Some people have lost their jobs and their businesses, but many others are at home with the same income and far less spending. And housing is one of the things you can save for. So demand has held up remarkably well. What has collapsed though is supply. Not only the supply of new homes being built because of lockdown, but also the supply of 2nd homes is down about 40 percent year on year Um, and that uh, some of that is is because of locked in itself and some of it feeds on itself because once prices start going up because of lack of supply some people think well maybe i'd be better off waiting or i can't find a home to buy myself and so i'll hold off my home for sale so that has fed into uh, very weak supply at a time of quite strong demand perhaps surprisingly so um, and that's pushed up prices
16: I think it would be fair to argue that when the pandemic is over or as it eases, demand is likely to increase, but supply may not be able to increase to keep pace with that. What changes are you expecting in the market next?
17: I think that's a, a critical point is that policymakers have obviously a huge amount on their plate at the moment um, with uh, with everything that's going on uh, but the supply of housing has been a critical issue, it was probably the key issue in the, in the last election and it will remain a key issue not just for the next 3-5 years but for the next 20 or 30 years as we adapt to change patterns we, we're in smaller households now, we're more urban uh, but the housing supply hasn't really adapted in response to that so making sure the housing supply is adequate for for our needs, I think is a really key point for policymakers to not lose focus on over coming years. There is, of course, a question as to how much uh, COVID may change people's preferences so far the evidence from other countries is if it changes people's preferences it's not really about urban to rural and instead it's more about city versus city the cheaper cities do better compared to more expensive cities uh, when it comes to to housing that that's where the demand shifts to and that would that would augur well for um, Cork and Galway and Limerick and Waterford but perhaps not augur quite so well for the government's plans to try and encourage people to live all across the country.
16: Ronan, thank you. That's Ronan Lyons, economist at Trinity College, Dublin.
5: The trial of a former police officer accused of murdering African-American George Floyd in Minneapolis in the United States last year will resume today after a technical glitch meant it had to end early yesterday. Derek Chauvin, who is white, is charged with murder and manslaughter of Mr Floyd, whose death reverberated around the world and sparked a global movement for racial justice. His death was witnessed by the world too, after a video showing Derek Chauvin kneeling on his neck for over nine minutes. in his opening statement, the lawyer for the prosecution, Jerry Blackwell, repeated the words he does not let up, he does not get up. He said Derek Chauvin was not following police procedure and had acted callously.
18: Mr. Derek Chauvin betrayed this badge when he used excessive and unreasonable force upon the body of Mr. George Floyd. That he put his knees upon his neck and his back grinding and crushing him until the very breath no ladies and gentlemen until the very life were squeezed out of him
5: well derek chauvin's attorney eric nelson told the jury that mr floyd was under the influence of drugs at the time of his arrest and was resisting being taken into custody
18: you will learn that derek chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career The use of force is not attractive, but it is a necessary component of policing.
5: Well, I've been talking about the trial to Katrina Pross, who reports for the Pioneer Press in Minneapolis. She said the defense had introduced the idea of reasonable doubt early on.
19: For the defense, um, their main argument is that Chauvin's use of force against mr floyd was was reasonable, and that he was doing what he what he was trained to do and doing what his police training um in his nineteen year career had prepared him for. so that that was one of their main arguments. and they're also likely to draw from Floyd's underlying health conditions because there's been reports that he had problems with his heart, and that even if chauvin hadn't put his knee on floyd's neck that day that he that floyd would have died anyway so they're likely to reference that as well as some um drug use that the the, that the defense has reported that mr floyd was um had drugs in his system at the time of his death will you tell us katrina about the
5: evidence of the dispatcher the police dispatcher jenna scurry what was her evidence
19: yeah, her evidence was really interesting. Um so she was the 911 dispatcher that night when Floyd died. So she received information from a 911 call and gave that information to police to respond to um, the Cup Foods, the, the store on 38th in Chicago, that there were reports of a man using a, a fake um, $20 bill. So she gave the police officers that information. And while she was working, there was a TV monitor in her office. And from time to time, she would kind of look up at that monitor. And it was actually a street camera view of right outside of, of the store showing the whole arrest unfolding. And she would glance at it occasionally. And she said that at one point, she thought that the video had frozen because the officers were on top of Floyd for so long and when she said that there was kind of a bit of a, a gasp amongst the journalists that I was working alongside that was just kind of a really powerful statement that she made that she thought she thought that something was so wrong that the video had have been frozen. Was she cross-examined by the defense? Yes she was um so they um Eric Nelson is Derek Chauvin's defense attorney, and so he was kind of having her agree. Well, you know, you're you're not a police officer, correct? You you don't have this training, the same sh- the same training that Mr. Chauvin has, and you were multitasking, and you couldn't hear any audio, and you know, you weren't there, and this isn't something you're an expert in, which you know she agreed with. So, I think they were just trying to emphasize that. The defense is really trying to emphasize in their arguments that there's more to the story than, you know, just these nine minutes and 29 seconds.
5: And one of the other witnesses yesterday, Katrina, was a man called Donald Williams called to the stand by the prosecutors. What was his evidence?
19: Yeah, his evidence was also quite interesting. So he actually witnessed um, he was one of the bystanders that that saw Chauvin kneeling on Floyd and he's actually trained um, in wrestling and mixed martial arts, so he has um, experience with chokeholds and, you know, defense and fighting. And so from from his experience and from his expertise, he thought that the restraint that Chauvin was using against Floyd was was dangerous and was causing him harm. And you can hear in the bystander video that he's repeatedly asking the officers to get off of him, please check his pulse, like, he's dying, like, this is, like you need to stop. So um, he was re- really vocal um, while the incident was unfolding. And yeah, from his, his testimony, which we actually had to stop halfway through, and we're expected to resume with his testimony again. Um, I think he's really emphasizing that, that this use of force was, was unnecessary. Yeah, there was a a technical glitch which meant that the
5: trial had to end early uh, on the day. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. But look, I mean, this killing of George Floyd, it sparked a a global movement for racial justice. We are here in Ireland talking to you about it today. What is the the level of interest there in Minneapolis, Minnesota and across the United States in this trial?
19: Yeah, I mean, I think for you know Minnesota Minneapolis this is just something you know that happened in our community and you know everybody know i mean everybody in the world knows who george floyd is now but especially here in minneapolis you know there's pictures of him everywhere and just there's signs saying justice for george and just a lot of you can just tell that everyone's kind of watching this and paying attention to this, um, and there were quite a lot of protesters that gathered outside of the courthouse today after court ended. Um, so you, yeah, you can just really feel that you know the world is the world is watching this whole trial unfold. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's something that definitely everybody is paying attention to.
5: And that was Katrina Pross who reports for the Pioneer Press in Minneapolis. <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm. Let's go north before we leave you, where the fallout from the
7: decision not to bring prosecutions over the Bobby Story funeral during lockdown in Belfast last summer. That'll be continuing today. The PSNI Chief Simon Byrne, he's still refusing to resign, as First Minister Arlene Foster has said he should. Stormont is being recalled for an emergency debate, and the policing board meets today as well in what's likely to be a critical session. For more on the worsening row, we're joined by our northern editor. Vincent Kearney. Uh, Vincent, first of all, let's talk about how serious this row is, what's at stake and what's going to happen today.
20: Well, potentially uh, very serious on you in terms of confidence and policing and where policing goes from here. Because Arlene Foster has, has stated a lot on this. When the first minister, the first minister, didn't mince her words here. You know, she didn't say that perhaps uh, Simon Byrne should reflect on his, the decisions made and reflect on his performance. She pressed, uh, in many ways, the nuclear button on this one by calling for Simon Byrne to resign. She's repeated that uh, since uh, a number of occasions yesterday. She said he has lost the confidence of the unionist community and therefore must as I know. He is digging his heels and this is a, this is a man who came from, with a reputation for being fairly stubborn and fairly headstrong. As far as he's concerned, only he has done nothing wrong. His officers have done nothing wrong. So he says he's going nowhere. Uh, so with the policing board meeting uh, today, it started just a short time ago at half past eight. Uh, they'll first of all discuss other matters and then at ten o'clock they'll get around to the discussion of Simon Burns' performance and his future. Uh, that meeting is likely to be fairly hot and heavy I'd imagine.
7: Mm-hmm. It's a private meeting, isn't it? What do the DUP do if uh, the PSNI i chief doesn't resign?
20: It's a private meeting at this stage. Normally, it's worth pointing out that there's a public-facing element to these meetings, so the media and the public can watch. Now, the policing board yesterday said on this occasion it will be private, but both the DUP and SDLP this morning have put on record that they're unhappy with that, and they're pushing the chair of the board to have another meeting this afternoon, which would really be a rerun of what happens this morning, but that the media and public would have access. We get watch that on Zoom because they are very uh, determined, if you like, to make sure that the public see the level of anger they have. Now, in terms of what the DUP can do, the the bottom line is the Policing Board employs the Chief Constable. He's accountable to it. um, But it's made up of 10 political members and nine independent members. Four of those political members are members of the DUP, but there are three Sinn Féin and then one each from the Alliance, uh, from the SDLP and the Ulster Unis. So the DUP can't force... um, Simon Bourne to go anywhere. Now, one option could be to table a vote of no confidence, but that can't be held today because they must give 10 days' notice for such a motion. Um, we know that the DUP and others are also on. You know, looking at the possibility of the board bringing in an independent body, like Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, to examine the events leading up to the funeral and the level of engagement between police officers and the organisers of the funeral. Now, that could take the sting of the situation and put the issue on the long finger. Then you know, there's the, the nuclear option, DUP members leaving the board in protest. Now that would be hugely damaging for the Chief Constable but also for the board itself because unionists exerted a huge amount of pressure on Sinn Féin to join the board as a clear demonstration of support for the PSNI and for the rule of law. So they would stand accused of hypocrisy if they withdraw their members. It could also further destabilise the unionist and Nordist community. At a time when we know there's a a very great Mm -hmm. level of discontent and anger within unionism towards things like the Northern Ireland Protocol. There's talk of potential street protests in the weeks and months ahead. So if the, if the DUP was through its members, that could add to that, that feeling of discontent and anger within the Unionist and Nordist community and reduce the DUP's ability to have any influence over that community if there were to be street protests. So potentially very serious implications.
7: And a lot going on today. Thanks for filling us in. That's our Northern editor, Vincent Kearney. <laughs>
0: With Level 5 restrictions still in place, many families will be spending Easter apart this year, but there are still plenty of other ways to celebrate the holiday and stay connected. Our reporter Killian Sherlock has been looking at fun decorating trends and crafty activities for younger members of the household.
18: Happy Easter, happy Easter.
21: Current restrictions mean this year's Easter weekend will be more local, but it doesn't have to be boring. Irish Girl Guides has released a free online Easter activity pack full of crafts and tasks for all ages. Mia and Cuiva Barrett in Kinsale County Cork had some fun examples.
11: So I made these Easter nets. They were just chocolate nests with eggs in them and they were like really easy to make. I did them on a Zoom call with my guide group. They were delicious as well. We had them gone in about a day here.
15: With my, <laughs> we ate them all with my family. They were delicious, yeah. There's a really nice Easter basket that you can make out of paper with a nice little handle on it to carry all your eggs. Um, Personally, I'm most looking forward to making s'mores and they're really easy to make as well. And we also
11: made a sock bunny. It was really easy to make. So you just got a sock fill it with rice and then you tie it with an elastic band then more rice and then you just cut the ears and do the face and just we did a little pom-pom for the eyes and just a ribbon around just make it a bit more stylish and yeah they have like step to
15: steps on them as well.
21: Adults are getting into the Easter decorating spirit too. Ivano Cueve is the owner of Unbound a boutique Happy gift Easter. shop in Cork City. She outlined what this year's trends are.
9: I've been feeling that natural look so the naked branches or a little bit of buds um very much around plants and nature bringing those into the home or just um, house plants that have Easter decorations on them. Just small little touches. I think that are very much natural or handmade has been a big thing this year. We've been finding we've been sending out gifts of wreaths um, to people to cheer them up. We also have been doing egg ornaments for the Easter trees. Have been really popular this year.
21: She says sharing images of decorations on social media has helped people stay connected
9: seeing into other people's homes and lives that you were not getting to see in real life. But it's become really important to have that visual representation of that celebration.
21: Stony Badder, Pride of Place, is a community which has been documenting the creative efforts of the residents of the Dublin suburb. Tony explained how he and his partner Fergal got involved. For Easter, we took
8: a little step further by asking a friend of mine who's retired to uh, make us a lovely uh, wreath of a bunny jumping through the wreath. And we backed that up with some uh, local decorations that we got in the local store. You can decorate with anything. It doesn't have to be brilliant. It it can be a drawing by your children or it could be cut out shapes just to get the point across and to let people walk by and put a smile on their face or in turn give them an idea of something that they could do.
21: In a village north of the city, another Easter tradition is planned for Sunday as the Old Town Community Council puts on its egg hunt. Here's David MacDonald.
16: Because of Covid, there won't be much interaction. Uh, the families just come around, they answer the questions and uh, collect the eggs afterwards. They'll get an A4 sheet of paper with a map of the village and there'll be seven questions on it. And then uh, they fill out all the answers and uh, then it'll take probably about 40 minutes, 45, 50 minutes to walk around.
21: And two participants are already excited.
16: You looking forward to Sunday?
14: It's going to be be excellent. Happy Easter, happy Easter, happy Easter to you.
0: Sounds from the 1940s Fred Astaire and Judy Garland musical Easter Parade ending that report from Killian Sherlock. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.